The Book of Acts is widely believed to have been written by the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a companion of Paul, and he was present for some of the history that's presented in the Book of Acts. The book begins with the resurrected Jesus appearing to the apostles and then ascending into the sky. Then the apostles gather in Jerusalem. Peter then becomes the focus of the effort to spread the faith. Mostly he preaches to Jews. It will be Paul who will become famous as the evangelist to the Gentiles, but Peter does preach to Gentiles, to non-Jews. In fact, the very first person who's identified in the Bible as a non-Jew who converts to the faith and becomes a follower of Christ is evangelized by Peter, not Paul. This happens in the southern part of Israel near Jerusalem. So let's look at the first Gentile to accept Christ. Cornelius was a centurion in the Roman army. It's most likely true that no actual Roman legions were stationed in Judea at this time, and so he's probably one of many local recruits. Cornelius is part of a force whose job it is to maintain order in this Roman province. At the beginning of this story, Cornelius is not yet a follower of Jesus. But Luke tells us that already, Cornelius and all members of his household fear God. Remember that in the Bible, to fear God means to follow and to respect God, not to literally be afraid of God. Cornelius is known to give alms to poor Jewish people. He prays all the time. Thus we see that although he's a Gentile, he believes in the Jewish God. It's not clear at what level he believes. He certainly has not become a Jew. Most likely, he has lived with Jews all his life and has grown comfortable with their notion of God, and he has an intuitive feeling that he wants to be one of the faithful. But the only option for him as a Gentile is to become a Christian. It was a big deal for Peter to bring the faith to a Gentile. Up to this point, Jesus had simply been the Jewish Messiah who was rejected by the leaders of his faith. Jesus, until this moment, was a Jewish phenomenon. In truth, we certainly do not know for a fact that Cornelius was the first Gentile Christian. He's just the first one to be documented in the Bible. There's a beautiful poetic story that precedes his conversion. Remember that up until now, Peter has seen himself as the evangelist to Jews. It wasn't yet in his heart to try to bring Christ to Gentiles. Before he meets Cornelius, Peter is up on a rooftop where he's presented with a variety of foods that Jews would consider unclean. Peter's reaction as a Jew, as a devout Jew, is to reject this food. But a voice tells him that he should eat the food. Peter tries to refuse, saying that he's always followed the Jewish food laws. But then the voice, which is obviously God, says this, What God has made clean, do not call common. 
Now this is from Acts chapter 10 of the English Standard Version. The New International Version translates it more clearly for modern readers. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Peter is still processing this statement from God when there is a knock on his door and messengers from Cornelius, whom he doesn't know, tell him that Cornelius wants a visit from Peter. Two days later, Peter meets Cornelius, along with friends and relatives of Cornelius. In Acts, this is what Luke tells us happens. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked to him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Now it's then that we're told how Cornelius decided to ask Peter to visit. Luke writes this, And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We see that it's an angel who has appeared before Cornelius, telling him that he should send for Peter. Peter on the rooftop in Joppa has come to understand that he shouldn't consider anyone as impure or unclean. Luke then tells us this. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Cornelius and his family embraced the faith. They received the Holy Spirit, and they're baptized with water. This becomes a critical milestone in the spread of the faith. It has now jumped the boundary from Judaism to the Gentiles, that is to us. What happens next is that Peter tells the other apostles, as well as other believers, what has happened. Here's what Luke writes in Acts. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The emerging church has been taken in a new direction. The gospel will be brought to all people, not just Jews. It appears that God sent an angel to the centurion who had been captivated by the stories of the Jews around him and who had become to believe in their God. That angel had this man send for Peter so that he could be baptized and along with his entire extended family be brought into the faith. The Bible is filled with beautiful allegories, and we see another one here. 
Most people reading this passage wouldn't actually see it. The important thing is that the centurion is us. We had the Holy Spirit within us, working on us, letting the light in. It was there all along. We just didn't know it. Then God intervened and brought us to the faith. All of us are like the very first Gentile Christian. We are all the centurion Cornelius. Now, though, I must admit that it's very presumptuous of me to assume that everyone hearing this is a Gentile. It's not even clear what it means. In the Bible, Gentile simply refers to someone who's not a Jew. But a Jew could decide to follow Jesus and still be a Jew. Becoming a Christian did not make that person a Gentile. Today, Mormon people, in their pride of being followers of the Israelite tradition, sometimes refer to non-Mormons as Gentiles. The word Gentile derives from the Hebrew and Yiddish word goy. Goy is considered pejorative today, and I don't think that many Jews would refer to non-Jews as goys. I've been told that to really be a goy, by the way, you have to actually be male. The bottom line with the term Gentile is that in the Bible it is a racial term that also corresponds to a religious group. It refers to people who are not ethnic Jews, and back then these people were all pagans. Let's try to find a definition of Gentile that's useful for us. Maybe this is as close as we can come to a biblical definition that's relevant today. A Gentile will be a non-Jew who does not truly follow the God of the Israelites and needs to be fully introduced to God. Believing Christians, then, will not be Gentiles. There's a subtlety to the story of Cornelius the centurion in the book of Acts. Notice that before he embraces the teachings of Jesus, he already believes, at least to some extent, in the God of the Jews. But to make that last step, to be fully committed as a believer, he must deepen his faith by committing himself to Christ. An angel appears to him to tell him what to do, to call for Peter to visit him and to be baptized. It was true that, quote, to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. But he must be absolutely sure and he must give everything to God. He can't hold anything back. He believes in God, but he's still a Gentile. Now, is there an angel talking to you, telling you that you're still part Gentile, that you're holding back just a bit? You're not absolutely certain in your faith? A while back, there was a man in the hospital whom I was asked to go see. He didn't ask for a chaplain. He asked a nurse for a, quote, pastor, and she sent that request to the chaplain's office. We don't have anyone called pastor at the hospital. The other chaplains, none of whom are clergy, asked me to go see him. He wasn't dying. His illness wasn't anything dramatic at all. He had not had a brush with death, he had been injured in a car accident and had been knocked unconscious. 
He was there for a couple of days because he had a bruise on his brain, but he was expected to be completely fine. He said that he'd been sitting in bed for 48 hours with nothing to do but watch TV. The TV gave him a headache, though, and so he kept it off. There he was then, a guy that was usually go, go, go all the time, always keeping busy, barely squeezing in church on Sunday morning, and suddenly he had two days with absolutely nothing to do. It had caused him to think about his faith. He said that he hadn't been baptized as a kid, but he had never questioned his faith as an adult. He hadn't started going to church until he was in his early 20s and when he met the woman to whom he was married. She was a believer. She brought him to the faith. Now, though, he realized that he had compartmentalized his faith too much. He was only a Sunday morning Christian, he realized. It wasn't like he did unchristian things the other six days. He had a wife and two young kids. He was devoted to his family. He never drank until he was drunk. He tried to be kind to everyone. And he thought that it was horrific the way that online gambling was being pushed so aggressively on TV. But he didn't think about God during the week. He prayed with his kids at night, read the Bible with them. He wanted to be a full-time Christian, though, he said, and he just wasn't there yet. I said that it was great that he had come to that level of awareness. We talked about praying during the week and keeping God in his mind. Then he asked me to baptize him. I asked him if he might rather be baptized in his own church. He said no, his church had an interim pastor, and he didn't even know the man. So later that afternoon, when his wife was visiting, I went back to his room, and I baptized him. His wife became very emotional. It was very touching. The first reference to baptism in the Bible is John the Baptist using the running water of the River Jordan to baptize Jews. He isn't making them Christians, though. The faith did not yet exist. His baptisms are an extension of the traditional practice of repentance performed by Jews at the time. These are ritual baths for purification. People symbolically cleanse their souls by cleansing their bodies. The first true baptism was that of Jesus. Remember, though, that just before John baptizes Jesus, he's quoted in Matthew as saying this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's the difference. When we fully accept God, when we fully commit to being believers of Jesus, we are not undergoing a ritualistic bath where we seek the cleansing of our souls. The big difference is that we accept the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, and we commit to letting the Holy Spirit drive our actions throughout our lives. That's what I told this young father, that he needed to take the next step and embrace the Holy Spirit fully and consciously. 
The word baptism, by the way, derives from the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse. But as Christians, we are also baptized in the fire of the Holy Spirit. This is how we go from being Sunday morning Christians to being 24-7 Christians, by living with the fire within us every second of every day. When Cornelius the centurion is baptized, he makes that next step. He isn't just baptized in water. He doesn't just cleanse his soul and accept God. He has already done those things. He accepts both Christ and the Holy Spirit. He truly becomes a very different human being. This is how we learn to live with grace for all people, to live with forgiveness for all people, and with the desire for all people to live in total peace. We become people who live every second of every day as believers. We have been baptized with water and with the fire of the Holy Spirit. And we feel that fire every day, all day. Uh-huh.